This is Donnie Tuttle, the Sell Anywhere trainer, coach, and practitioner. Welcome to the only podcast designed for the remote sales professional and the remote leader, helping you live with more joy, more freedom, and more productivity. We believe that your talent is not limited to years of code and that you can build the life that you want while selling from anywhere. What's up, Sell Anywhere listeners? I'm your host, Donnie Tuttle, and you're going to be really excited about the man I'm bringing on today. And you know, famously, I say that our talent is not limited to our zip code. And uh, we're going to talk to a guy who's probably had dozens and dozens of zip codes, but who's also doing some really cool things um, right now in life. And uh, he is the author of an awesome book, Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Know. Um, he is the chief storyteller and co-founder at Growth in Focus and um, international best-selling author, um, just a cool traveling dude and someone that I have uh, met and get along with really well. I like him. So will you. Welcome to the show, Mike Adams. Thank you, Donnie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, before we jump in, and we're going to ask you lots and lots of questions, this is Sell Anywhere. So I got to know where you're at. What's your, what's your location right now, Mike? I am sitting in, in an office in my garden in Melbourne, Australia. It's early morning. Sun's come up. Beautiful day. We're going to have about 30-something degrees Celsius today, I think. So, yeah. Love it. I don't know what that means. Um, you know, talk American. Get, get, that's, that's, getting up, <laughs> that's getting up to 100 in, Christ, in Christian units. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit warm. That's right. You guys are south of the equator, and so this is, this is your summertime, right? That's right. Just starting to get hot. Bushfire season, actually. Bushfire season. Wow. So cool. So, uh, so Mike, tell us, tell us a little bit about what you do, man. Like, you travel so many places. You do a lot of things. Like, like what do you do for work? Okay. Today, I ha- I'm in a very enviable situation, I think, because I've had a, a career in large corporates. But for the last four years, I do whatever takes my fancy, really. My wife hates it. Um, <laughs> But I've been building a consulting business to help salespeople say the right thing. Mm. And I know you've been in the business with salespeople, so you know that salespeople most commonly don't say the right thing. Um, and by right, I don't just mean you know saying the right thing at the right time. I mean ethically saying the right thing as well. Mm. But, uh, but maybe I'll give you a little bit of my career and you'll know how I got to this. Yeah, uh, take, us, take us through the, you did some time in the oil and gas industry. Like, yeah, take us through, yeah. uh, take us through the journey, Mike. I will. And, and, and my book's seven stories every salesperson must tell. And the very first story in the book is my personal story or is a salesperson's personal story. So it's a story that, that explains why you do what you do. And I'll probably stretch this out a little bit because in a, in a business meeting, these meetings, these stories need to be tight, right? They need to be a minute or two at the max. Mm. But, uh, but this, so this is the personal story. So I, I grew up in Tasmania, which is a, a little island to the south of Australia. We do have Tasmanian devils, but they don't <laughs> spin, around, spin around in circles, right? I have to get, <laughs> have to get that in early if it's a, a cartoon audience. But uh, yeah, and I, I got the dream job out of university. I, I joined a company called Schlumberger. It's a, an American oil and gas services company, a French-American mm-hmm. oil and gas services company. Mm-hmm. And, and I got to work all over the world. In fact, I started in Indonesia, went to China when the people were still 
riding bicycles and wearing uh, military uniforms. So you know mm. how old I am, but uh, coming up towards 60. Um, and, and then to Malaysia, working on oil rigs and, and running electronic instruments in oil rigs. That was my job straight out of college, out of university. And it was fabulous. I, I absolutely loved it. And then I moved into to London, uh, into the computing center there. And I was an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer. That was my training. And I was set on being what they call a petrophysicist in the oil and gas industries. That's someone who really understands the physics of oil and gas flow and the rocks uh, deep underground when you drill an oil well. Hmm. I got called, called into my boss's office one day. This would have been 1996 in uh, London. And he said, Mike, we have a great career opportunity for you. Well, um, any of your listeners who have a corporate career know that career opportunity means job someone no one else wants to do, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's career opportunity. So he said, we want you to go to Norway. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty good. And we want you to be a salesperson. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. That I, in fact, at that stage, I, I thought that salespeople were just lying, manipulative people <laughs> that said anything to get a bit, piece of business. And I just didn't want any part of it. But, um, but my wife was keen to go to Norway. It was pretty alluring. And my wife was keen to go. And um, she was actually eight months pregnant at the time. Mm. Um, and so we went to Norway. And, and I was thrown into this experience, which... Uh, you know, if you're an engineer and you're a very technical person, it, it's a, a, a very confronting job. Actually, I think it's a confronting job for anyone that starts into selling. Mm. But I had this incredible good fortune, Donnie. I, I closed the, the biggest deal in our software division globally. Uh, and, you know, Schlumberger is a massive industry, but, but it, was complete, it was complete good luck. It was just total good fortune. I connected with this guy in one of the big oil companies and he decided he liked our new software, but he didn't just like it for himself. He thought his entire company should use it everywhere. And there happened to be a, a global conference of all of the sort of software experts for this technology in Stavanger in Norway at that time. And he asked me if he could book our theater. We had a, a, like a sort of a mini, almost cinema theater style, university style theater in our office. And, um, he got up, got up on stage and presented our software to 30 of these guys. And it was just a brilliant performance. He had a bit of actor in him. And, uh, mm. and I was sitting next to my boss who'd flown over from London at the end of this thing, which was just incredible. He turned to me with this sort of stunned look on his face. and like, Mike, how did, how did you engineer this, you know, rookie salesperson? And, uh, um, and it was nothing to do with me at all. It was just pure good fortune to mm. connect with someone and you know that guy ended up joining our company and he changed that he ended up building our that software business to being a billion dollar a year business mm. and um so this is like you know this doesn't happen twice in a career this kind of luck but it, you know it's enough to make you think that you're good <laughs> that, <laughs> that you can be a salesperson and it touches on one of the interesting challenges of sales or selling anything it's quite difficult to know when you succeed. Was it your good skill or was it your good luck? Because there is actually quite a bit of good and bad fortune through selling and it takes some experience, some savvy to, to pick what's what. And, uh, but anyway, I, I stayed selling. I ended up running a sales team, managing a sales team in Russia. We lived in Norway. Uh, Norway moved to Russia. We lived in Moscow. We had three boys by then. And uh, then it was time to come home. I'd spent a long time in the oil and gas industry, living all over the world. And um, my dad was getting sick. So we decided to move to Melbourne. 
and we had no contacts there whatsoever apart from my sister. So I'd never worked in Australia at that time and I needed to change career because uh, there's no oil and gas business really in Melbourne. That's in Perth on the other side of the country. Hmm. And so um, I know I told a good story. I told a very good story <laughs> and I got a job selling telecommunications equipment to our biggest telecommunications carrier for Siemens. Siemens is a massive global multinational German company. And, um, you know, I used to joke to my friends, I knew I was perfect for the job, apart from knowing nothing about telecommunications <laughs> or my clients or Siemens, the company I was working for. And, uh, but I was fortunate, you know, by then I'd started figuring out that I needed certain stories to figure out what I was doing. And, and I, I was sort of early in my journey of, of trying to discover how to get the stories I felt I needed to be able to sell. And most companies don't have those stories. You have to go and find them. And um, so I, I was successful and I ended up becoming sales manager, uh, transferred out of Australia back overseas to Malaysia, to Kuala Lumpur. And I had a big team, more than 100 sales and technical salespeople operating all throughout Asia for right. what, became, what became Nokia Siemens. So we merged with Nokia and eventually it's just Nokia again. All right, so and, I'm, counting, um, I'm counting the countries so far. I think I'm at five, six. Well, actually I skipped a bit because um, I'd lived in nine countries by then. Uh, I spent nine a stint in, countries. Yeah, I spent a stint in the USA and uh, France. I did my training in Paris for four months as well. So anyway, back in Malaysia, which is an oil and gas town, I ended up shifting back to work for Halliburton for a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that was an interesting career move. That was uh, four levels up in the Twin Towers in KL. So that's a, the huge Twin Towers there. I was on 71. I moved up to 74 and uh, kept my kids in the same school. Uh, had to change cars because it was a different company and swapped industry again uh, in the same <laughs> building. <laughs> so, you know. That, that, but that was a bit of a stroke of luck too. I happened to meet my boss from Schlumberger in Russia who had moved to Halliburton. And, and when we met, he said, Mike, I want you to come back and work for me. And, uh, and, and I eventually did. But so that, that was the easiest career move. The kids didn't even have to move school <laughs> or, or country. But uh, yeah, and then I did two more industry moves. I went back to Australia and sold in the facility services industry, which is very prosaic, you know, very, you know, quite, basic business selling cleaning and catering and uh, those kind of services mm -hmm. but but i was doing it for the big oil and gas camps and mining camps in western australia and these are these are really big contracts these are 20 30 million dollar per year contracts and um, hmm. where you're managing thousands of workers so spotless was managing the company i was working for was managing forty thousand staff and we were working in these uh, mining areas that had 20 30,000 staff it was really interesting, actually. Then I, I moved back into telecommunications again. And then 2014, that was enough big companies for me. I definitely had enough of that. There's a, there's a thing I call um, corporate stupidity, which is when your company does something that you know is a really bad idea, and it is, it's a really bad idea. They merged with some company or they did some massive restructure, and you have to pay lip service to that idea until it mm. fails for about 18 months or two years. And this is sort of personal dissonance that you feel where you're having to, you're having to put a good spin on something you know won't work. Mm. And there's only so long you can actually do that for. It's bad for your soul. Mm. And 
you know, this happens with big corporate merchants. If you're lucky, maybe it won't happen to you, but it happened to me three or four times when I was working for big corporates and, uh, or, or you get working with a boss that you really don't like and you just can't stand it, but you have to stick it out, you know, for other reasons. And, and I just thought it's time to do my own thing. And so, so that's what I did. And the, the problem I chose to try and solve was the one that I had the most difficulty with as a sales manager. You know, I'd worked as a sales manager in, well, five industries by that time. And, and the problems are absolutely common to every industry. It doesn't matter if you're selling high tech, low tech, whatever. And the problem is how to get your salespeople to quickly understand how to say the right thing. And it's a very tough problem. It's really difficult. And oh man, I can't, I can't wait to dig into that with you. Um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of points just like from your story so far that I wanna, I wanna deliberate on. Uh, a, a little more. And I, I'm curious. So during that time, we're talking nine different countries. Uh, yes. Nine, nine countries, five industries from that went from, wow. right. Well, so I started. That, yeah. That, that's cool on Instagram. Right. When we, can, <laughs> right? but, but, <laughs> see it. but the, but the real life of it, right. What, what, um, what was, what, what did you um, just, I guess, I guess in the different locations and also going from location to location, this was a time when maybe you didn't do this as a choice of saying, I want to travel. It was just like, Hey, this is where my career is taking me. What were the, um, like, what, what were the highlights of that as far as that you, like you, you were most appreciative of uh, maybe places and experiences and what were the difficulties? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, like that's difficult to answer in a quick answer, but I might say like, how did this happen? And I just, the, the company Schlumberger, so I worked in nine countries and lived in nine countries all over the world, just with that one company. So I also moved again subsequently. And, and the employment contract was you go anywhere, anytime. And I actually changed countries from China to Australia once inside 24 hours. Now, obviously mm. I was, I was a bachelor then <laughs> that's kind of exciting. Right. Um, but um, so that was the deal. So that was how I got into that. And, and I, I really married well, you know, I married mm. someone who, Megan, who, who is adventurous as well. And, and she, she'd lived in Thailand, Thailand for a year when she was 15 on a, on a field scholarship exchange. So, so we, we liked the excitement of, mm. of moving around so the world. It fit your, it fit your persona. It, it did. As to the difficulties, um, you know, they're, they're, they're quite varied and you, you always have assumptions when you, when you move country, you have an assumption about what, what it will be like to live in that place. And your assumptions are always wrong. And, and I used to say to people who asked me about it, you, you go through, through three phases of going into a country. So you, you go into a new country and everything's new and wonderful and fantastic. And you're just sort of drenched in, in new sensations, right? You know, if you move from uh, London to where we moved from, we moved from Australia. We'd actually had a short stint back in Australia in Adelaide and we left Australia and the temperature was more than 40 degrees Celsius, which hmm. is 110 or something. Oh like my gosh. That, right? And we landed in Moscow. It was minus 26. And so that, yeah, how's that for temperature difference? Right? <laughs> oh, wow. So we had, we had three boys at that time. I'm quite young. Our youngest was uh, four, three and a half. And the oldest was about seven at that time. And so, so anyway, but you have this experience of like, everything's new and it's interesting and it's stimulating. Right. 
And then you go into this phase where you just can't stand it. You know, you, you can't get the food that you like to eat. You don't trust the food that you're eating. If you're in Russia, you know, the <laughs> Chernobyl nuclear accidents have been so long earlier. Um, it's dangerous. The road safety is terrible. The, the people start to disgust you with their personal habits. And you have this sort of, you know, like this is probably like three or four months in, you know, and then slowly, slowly you start to accept and you start to understand how the country works. And, and, and this is what you don't get as a tourist. As a tourist, you just get that first phase, right? Usually. Mm. And, and I really, I really like that third phase where you start to understand and you start to think, okay, I'm starting to figure how this country actually works and how it's different and how my assumptions about how things get done and particularly how selling gets done uh, are wrong in subtle, many subtle different ways. But I also start to appreciate and understand and and enjoy the people and, and, and the country. All right. I def- I'm actually at this. So the sales question is where I want to go next, but it's interesting <laughs> because you literally have, you have so accurately described uh, right now at the recording of this podcast, uh, which is, um, it, it is the second weirdest place I've recorded from. I'm actually, well, it's, it's not weird, but it's just like, it's not ideal. I'm in a bedroom uh, <laughs> uh, that you could hear the dogs barking from my office, but uh, we've gone past phase one where everything was new and wonderful Right. And uh, we're kind of coming into or, or maybe coming out of uh, this, oh, I can't stand it, can't get what we want. <laughs> it is, this is like what you're saying is so accurate. <laughs> you nailed it, man. And, um, yeah. and, and I hopefully, hopefully we're coming into the uh, accept it and understand it part. But, you know, there, you can't help your brain. You, you will. Oh, yeah. You you, well, I mean, part of you goes back and says, oh, well, I, ha- I could have this and this is how it was. And, you know, just uh, everything from convenience to food to just uh, your, it's preference, right? It's just overcoming your, your own preference. But um, talk to me about sales. I'm really interested because I've only, you know, like I said, this is our, this is only the third country that I've been in. Um, and I've seen some, I have, I've seen differences uh, in the places where I've been at. How, like, how, like, what were the differences in selling? What did you, uh, how did you adjust? How did you figure it out? Uh, I'm real curious about that. Yeah, well, I mean, so one of the good things about a company working for a company like Schlumberger is it's just a truly international company. In fact, I say that it's probably the only transnational company in the world in the sense that the people in that company are not from any one culture or country in essence, you know, so think of any company you can think of, just think of any multinational, I don't know, Apple, it's an American company. Sure. Uh, Shell, it's a Dutch British company, right? And the people at the top of those organizations are those nationalities to an extent, but Schlumberger, the people at the top of that company are from every country in the world. And they, it is, it is, they hire in proportion to the number of engineers they need in a given country. And that is that mixture of total transnational. It's a beautiful, it's a, just a beautiful experience to work for a country where it matters. Absolutely. It doesn't matter a bit where you're from. Huh. Just can you do the job? It's the and USS enterprise. <laughs> it's incredible. And so, so that what that means is that, so there's a culture in that company that's quite extreme. It's a highly meritocratic engineering multinational culture in the company. So what that means is when you move into a new country, 
there's at least one culture that you that you understand and that's your company culture right so you've got people there that you've, you've never met them but you know them hmm. because you know them from your company so that's an advantage actually that's an advantage that i had um and it really helps because those people help you understand the business climate so if you uh-huh. turn up in moscow and you need to go now talk to some of the big executives from the oil companies well you're going to go with not only locals but you're going to go with other foreign multinationals that have been in the country for a while and have their that company culture but they can help you and you know so you you have a guide in the sense that you know you can learn how the business works but uh, but i have a view and you might find this curious but my view is that the north american particularly us actually i would say you let me be more specific the us business culture is probably one of the most extreme business cultures in the sense that it is quite let's get down to business right we're in a hurry we're trying to do things get let's get down to business and most countries are on a on a continuum that moves away from that extreme towards let's sit down and spend a year or two getting to know each other and then we might do some business mm. And this is the critical thing to understand, like how slow is this going to be? And, but it turns out like this is an interesting thing. It turns out you get where you want to go at the same speed because you spend the time to understand each other and know each other very well. You don't have the screw ups. You don't have the misunderstandings at the contract stage. Hmm. And in fact, the, the fact the contract never comes out, so the U.S. is the most litigious and contract-based business country in the world. And, and as you go away from that, it's kind of less contractual. And the contract never comes out of the drawer, ever. Hmm. Isn't that interesting, right? So you need to understand that, particularly if you're American, <laughs> you've got to understand that things will go more slowly. And they will need to be sure that they trust you before they'll sign anything. And signing something is signing something is really interesting. I could write a book on the difference in getting a contract signed in all those different places, which is totally different. In Russia, the contract has to be signed by, let's say, 20 people in order from least important to most important. And the top person, which might be the owner of the company, has 19 signatures of the people he's going to go after if this thing doesn't work. <laughs> so imagine signing, imagine getting 19 signatures when half of them in Siberia and half of them in Moscow. That's, that's a little interesting sales challenge. My, I'm, <laughs> I'm scratching my head because I'm thinking like this is, this, that's at least 19 stops that we're making on the way up to the, uh, to the top guy. Uh, wow. Like, like, so we're not just talking about how agreements happen, but also like, that impacts the whole process. It's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and Southeast Asia, working in China and Asia, d- very different again. And yeah. And, and, and there's also an, as- an aspect of socializing. And I have to say, in some of the countries, alcohol plays a really big part in this. And, uh, and, and, and I don't know how much this is changing, right? Because it's a long time. Since, so it's now, uh, you know, when was I doing deals in Russia in 2000? 2001 2002 i'm going to guess it hasn't changed that much um but i was in china relatively recently and uh it's pretty hard drinking socialization as well and you know that's part of the culture uh, huh. and 
you know, you're not changing that. It doesn't mean you have to drink, but it's difficult not to drink if you're in these banquets. And, and the, the, these banquets, like in China or the vodka drinking in Russia, are part of the business process. They're absolutely a fundamental part. In fact, I shall tell a short anecdote, if you like. Please uh, do. Now, this is, this was, is very intriguing. I was uh, now I've got to remember which godforsaken Siberian town I was in. I think it was Noyabrsk. I think it was Noyabrsk. Anyway, so it was in West Siberia, and we had closed a, a software deal, and um, we're about to head off to the airport. We, we were actually we were, we were perpetually nearly running late for our flight, and um, it's the middle of winter, so ice runways, ice runways in Siberia, and just and the, but the client wouldn't let us go. He said, "No, we've." signed the deal now we're going to have a drink and i'm looking at my watch going and i I was with my boss actually flying with me to moscow and he said well we really can't flight's about to go and he said no no the flight the flight will wait we're having a drink and now we're talking a 200 person commercial flight back to moscow right (sighs) and um so we did we sat down so we went down into the basement of this building and laid out were all of the classic Russian fatty meats like salamis and, and uh, onions and cabbage and stuff, the, the savory stuff that they like to eat, a bottle of vodka. And we sat down there and started toasting this deal that we'd signed. And, you know, I'm looking at my watch, flight's gone, you know, for sure. And then we, we come out of that, it probably went for, you know, hour and a half and out to the airport and the plane was waiting for us, two of us. So we, oh. yeah, we had, to, had to drive out drive out to, the, out to the plane, it's out in the middle of the runway, get on board, all the passengers are in there, you know, we sit down and then off we go. Yeah, in love with you, I'm sure, they're excited. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it, tells you where, it tells you where the power is in these towns, you know, this is a 50, 80,000 person city that we're in, and the guy we've just done the deal with has the power to hold the plane. For a drink, wow. So, um, were there, let me ask you this, were there any times where, um, the adjustment, and I'm just thinking on the sales side and, and uh, whether it's the process or getting a deal done, where it was either uh, confusing or unpredictable, where it just kind of went sideways? Yeah, the, the most difficult situations that I've been in have been where, where the, 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 the corrupt, you, it just becomes obvious that there's a corrupt situation going on. And, and this is where it's really difficult for Western companies and typically you know, you, you're working in certain countries, you know, I won't name them specifically, but, but, th- but there is your deal. Um, you know, for, I was selling deals, they're software deals, not massive, um, you know, one to 10 million kind of deals. And, and, and the corruption gets worse as the deal sizes get bigger. Hmm. But there are times when you just know you can't proceed that it's, it's a very clear that the thing that's happening is, is really about personal corruption and people taking, you know, 10% of contract value for themselves. And uh, that didn't happen to me too often, but, it, but I was aware of situations where we, we basically couldn't operate. That's, uh... and that, and that's an interesting cultural thing because whilst you know that you need to adapt to the culture of the company and particularly in how long it's going to take and who you need to, to know and understand and, and that, there are certain things that it's re- the responsibility of your company to, to maintain a cultural, uh, maintain an ethical position. Yes. And that can be very difficult. But, but, but if you t- do take the time to, um, to get to know them well and they get to know that, you, you're, not, you're not going to make them, cor- them 
not be corrupt. This is not going to happen. You are not going to change their corruption, but you can do straight business as in the business that you do. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I, where I lived in Moscow, uh, the, we were in a little sort of a little Western enclave, you know, this town, it was a little uh, gated community. And one of the guys there was working for one of the big software, soft drink uh, manufacturing companies. And he told me a story about going out to a, a, a town in Russia and they needed to build a, bot, a bottling factory. And uh, so he had to meet the sort of head constructor guy. And it was quite, it was quite feudal. You know, this was almost like the mayor of the town as well. This is the chief guy. And they sat down and, and, you know, he asked how much it was going to be. And this guy got a, a, a rough piece of paper out and a pen and, and wrote down price to build this building. And I'm just guessing the numbers now, $100,000. Uh, price of labor, $30,000. Uh, and then he wrote for you, $15,000. Added it up and it was, let's say, $130,000. <laughs> this friend of mine who was, who was Irish actually said, um, so I understand uh, the price of the building. I understand the labor. What does it mean for you? He said, yeah, that's, that's, that's your cut. We give you that out of the deal. And um, I said, well, that's very nice of you just to do that. But, uh, you know, I work, I'm very well paid. You don't, have to, you don't have to give me anything extra. So just cross that line out. So he did to cross the line out and he handed over. He said, well, but it still says 130,000. He said, oh yeah, the deal is 130,000. You don't have to have the 15,000. It's, <laughs> it's 130. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, so look, these are the things that, that you have to grapple with. And, and, I, and I just took the view that, you know, personally, we're going to sign a straight deal, you know, like that guy. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to change the business culture of this country, which has been like that for hundreds of years. But we'll still see if we can be friends. And, and, and I had made some fantastic friends in those places, in Russia and in China and in Malaysia and, uh, and in Indonesia. And, and at, the, at the interpersonal level, had a wonderful time. I, I found, as did a lot of the people I work with, a lot of the locals, I found their, their political systems to be quite disgusting in, in many cases. But, but the people were great and we really enjoyed doing business. That is that is so interesting, and um, I'm going to say I've I've seen parallels, um, even even in our our small jaunt uh, just a little bit south of the states, and and I've got to admit honestly, Mike, it's a little bit surprising. But when you look at the uh, at the culture, um, you know, comparatively, it feels uh, like certain things are off or they're wrong, uh, but for them, it, it's it's just not. It's just the way that things are done. And uh, it's interesting because I've, I've been, there's been a little bit of grappling mentally uh, going on there. And it's, and it's, I don't want to say it's hard, but you have to be conscious to not, um, you know, gravitate towards any sort of superiority or elitism or however you would name that. But, um, you know, it just is what it is. And the sooner you can accept that, um, you know, the sooner you can, you can move towards actually being, uh, being a help and a blessing and a benefit. So uh, we're going we're gonna to turn the page here um, into what you're doing with the book and, and how you simplify things. But I've got to ask one more question just in terms of the travel before we do it. Again, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, they're not office bound. Uh, they are, they're around the world. They want to be around the world. Um, something, you know, different. different. I, I just want to know, Mike, how is like, how are the nine countries or however many countries you've been to, how has that travel enriched you and um would you say that there have been any any limitations that have come along um with that type of a lifestyle yeah well 
it's one of those kind of hard, hard questions to answer because, you know, we live our lives and, and we make choices, right? So the fact that I chose not to have a standard career in my own country means for sure I miss something. I miss probably making a wider group of friends at home. Um, you know, we're now that we live back in Australia, but I don't know that I feel like I miss that so much. I, you know, I have, we have good friends here now. Um, so it, it certainly gives me a, probably a different perspective on political situations, mm. on how I look at the world. And, and I've changed a little bit too. So, you know, when I, when you're young and you're in your twenties and thirties and traveling through these wonderful places, you don't stop to think that much about what, it, what it really means. So you, you, you talk about some confronting things where you're living in, in uh, Mexico. Um, I think today, you know, I'm, I'm extremely thankful that I live in Australia for its political and legal system. It's not perfect, but it's pretty bloody good uh, compared to the total lack of human rights in some of the places I've lived in. Yes. It's really only in the last 10 years or so that I've started to think a lot more about that. And, uh, hmm. you know, I had a very interesting conversation with my PA. She was my personal assistant, but she was also our marketing person. She's really more than a PA. Highly intelligent Russian lady when I was living in Moscow and Vladimir Putin had just come into power. And before Putin, the direction of Russia was very much to liberalization and opening up. In fact, but it was going too fast, actually, particularly on the economic front. So the country was, was actually collapsing, trying to become capitalist hmm. and democratic at the same time. And Putin came in in 1999. I arrived in, in Moscow in early 2000. And, and through that first year, I was starting to, I was noticing what Putin was doing. He was, he was, he was shutting down the radio stations and taking over the television stations. And, uh, and I, I said to, to Nastya, my, my PA, you know, this to me as an outsider, this doesn't look good. This looks like a, a return to a dictatorship. And she said, very, it will, I will never forget her sentence. She said, Mike, you know, in Russia, we need a strong leader. And I thought, ooh, an Australian wouldn't say that. Hmm. And an Australian would not say, Australian would say, we need a strong opposition in parliament. We don't, we don't want a really strong leader. And I thought about, I just thought and thought and thought about what she said. And I thought, hmm. and, and you have to appreciate in, in Russia, in the year 2000, they've been through a roller coaster economic situation. Most Russians had lost their entire life savings, life savings mm. twice in the previous 10 years. Every family would have had members of their family been sent to the gulag or just mysteriously disappeared. That would have been every family would have had that experience. And underneath that is one emotion. And that emotion is fear. There's a palpable feeling of fear. And when you're afraid, you want someone strong to protect you. And this feeling, we need someone strong, someone powerful to protect us because we're afraid. And I, this is a, a very interesting insight. And the most wonderful, wonderful thing about living in a, what we, we call it a free country is we are mostly not afraid. And it's hard to know what it's like to really be afraid. And I think you're living in a country actually where a lot of people feel afraid for a different reason. And that fear infects you and it, and it leads you collectively to make the wrong choice. You think I need a strong leader and that strong leader stuffs you over every time. 
you know, that strong leader actually doesn't care about you at all. And they screw you over. And then you keep doing it collectively, collectively as a group, you keep doing it because you're afraid and you want the strong, powerful leader. We're actually seeing this in the United States right now. And you can't understand it. It's impossible to understand if you don't understand the fear, what, it, what, the, what the underlying emotion is of the people that are making that, to us, looks like irrational decision, but it's, there's a rationality to it. The rationality is, I just need someone to help to protect me. Mm. And uh, that was where I noticed that, you know, and... Uh, wow. Yeah, so I'm very, very thankful for my country. And whenever we get rid of our prime minister, which we do, we're doing regularly here in Australia about once every year, I'm thinking, it's okay. Our democracy is working. I'm quite mm. calm. I'm quite calm about it. I don't mind. The alternative is when you can't get rid of your prime minister, and that's a really bad situation. That goes wrong, my friends. All right. Just wanted to take a real quick break here because I want you to go and hit the pause button and go over and connect with me on social media. Because if you're not there, like, first off, how can we even be called friends, right? I want you to find me on LinkedIn. I want you to find me on Instagram. And it's Donnie Tuttle, D-O-N-N-I-E, Tuttle, T-U-T-T-L-E. And let's connect because here's the deal. Any of those little thought nuggets, any of those, you know, those things that are happening to me throughout my week, you are going to be able to connect with. And boy, I'd love to interact with you. So go ahead and do that. Let's keep the interaction going. Let's keep the party going. And now back to the show. Wow. Uh, you know, and I think, Mike, just even, even what you said collectively, uh, you know, just I, I want to pause on that one little moment that you, you, you were talking about fear and in, in realizing that, that it is a type of rationale. It's a, we'll just there call it a, a lower set of programming. And you said something, you said it, it brings you to a wrong choice. It does. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that happens with right populations. Um, and it's interesting how you've, you've identified that, um, you know, in, in terms of masses, but, um, but individually, it can also yes. affect us, right? It, it, and I think that when we are responding to, to, to that mechanism, we're lesser versions of ourselves. We are, uh, we're functioning on a rationale that in the end is not going to leave us in a better place. And um, man, that's powerful, man. That's I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot in a personal situation because, you know, if you were to sort of tick off the things I've done in my career, you know, Mike, and I've sold more than a billion dollars worth of stuff. I've done changed industries. I've worked for these blue chip companies. I've written a book. You know, I must be some kind of, you know, genius guy that gets after it and never has a moment doubt, you know, but I'm one of the world's worst procrastinators, Donny. I have to tell you, if, if I have a list of 10 things to do. And one of those things is like really super important and has to be done. But deep down, somehow, I'm not really sure why or how to get started. I can go for days. And this, is, of course, is much worse when you're working on your own with a small company. And it's <laughs> you can do whatever you want, right? I can, I can ignore doing that thing. And not only will I not do that thing, I will not do the other nine things because I'm thinking, no, I've got to do that thing first, right? So I will goof off. And it's, it's become, at times, it's become a little bit uh, chronic. And, and I'm thinking, it's very hard to know why we do things. Our brains don't actually tell us why we do things. There's a beautiful quote I, I read recently in a book, and it said, um, you are not the CEO of your brain. You are the press secretary. We, we kind of say afterwards why we did something, trying to make a good spin on it, right? But we don't actually know why we do things. And, and I think whenever, whenever there's something like that a bit, 
chronic and there's normally some fear at the bottom of it. And, and I actually think it might be paradoxically sometimes fear of success, you know, um, things are going really well. And if I do that, it's just going to go better and better. And, and, you know, there's something deep down, like, do I really want that? Do I want that big success or do I just want to relax now? You know? And, um, that is so true. Right, the, yeah. The personal fears, are, are, um, you know, we don't want to project that persona. Right. But I, t I want to, I want to just say something about personal stories because, you know, I've told you this rambling personal story and we've jumped off on a whole lot of sidetracks, but but when you tell your personal story in a business meeting, it cannot be, must not be the heroic story of, you know, I was a genius at school and I was, you know, number one in my companies and I grew and I started this business and it's been successful. If you tell that I'm brilliant story, no one is going to tell you their story back. And that's the, the fundamental reason we want to tell a personal story in a business, in a first meeting with someone that we think we want to do business with is we want to be able to say these magic words enough about me, Donnie, what about you? How, how did you get into <laughs> to being the, Mike, you know, Mike, you know, I'm perfect. Everything has been wonderful. And I've always only been straight A's and all successful. Yeah, Tell me yeah, about, yeah, you. I know, I know. about you. Enough about Bullshit. me. <laughs> Bullshit. Right, who, yeah. Who Bullshit. does, who wants to right? Oh my gosh. That's so true. All right. So that's okay. Bring me to there. Cause this is really what I want to, I wanted to, um, uh, yeah. really mine so, out from you, so right? Seven stories that every salesperson must tell. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw an asterisk in here. Uh, it, in, and we're going to make it leaders too, because if you're leading and influencing, you're selling. And actually what you just now said, by the way, I think every, every leader of, of people ought to listen to that one three or four times and let it sink in because it's in your vulnerability that you're actually drawing people closer to you. But give us the, give us the meat on this stuff, man. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're, that's right. So we've said seven stories often enough now. So if, if we don't say what the seven stories are pretty quick, your listeners are going to go away, cut their throats. But um, so this, the book is organized in a buying sequence, right? So it's a buyer's journey, which is a kind of story. So what's the journey that your buyer goes on? And then how does the seller connect into that journey? So if, if you look at it from the perspective of the seller, is the seller needs to make an authentic connection as early as possible in the buyer's journey. In fact, the most ideal place to make the connection is before the buyer knows they have a need for your services well before. So we need to make an authentic connection. So we, and, and so we're going to tell three stories to do that. There's your personal story and we're going to ask for their story. So we're going to get that exchange. We need to be able to tell our company story and, um, so now I've told too many stories, but I could give some examples of really nice company stories. But the story that explains how did your company start? Why didn't it fail? How did it succeed? Which kind of client does it really help? Who's your customer really? In a narrative that passes over the information. And inside that story will be things that salespeople like to say, like, we're the number one in this industry and we're in New York, Chicago and Los Angeles and we're the best and all that stuff without having to say any of that as an assertion, you just poke that into the story and it comes along for the ride for free. And the client mm. listens with interest because it's an interesting story and it is. So it's a, that story, if you do it right, is a hundred percent unique. It's interesting. It contains the information that you would like your client to know about you 
but they just listened because the thing about stories is we pay attention to stories because they're unpredictable. Um, I should just say what the definition of a story is. Please. Because a lot of people get, a lot yeah. of people get this wrong. A story is a sequence of related events. So if you say our company was started in 1985 in Chicago, good, that's an event. And then you say, and we're the number one provider of rail solutions across the United States. Wrong. That's not a related event. That's a claim and a, and a fact and an opinion. So you just fail to tell a story right there. You mm. have to lead each event. What happened in Chicago in 1985 and how did you build that up into a company? Every event has to be related to the previous event. And there has to, so that's the first thing. It has to be a sequence of related events or it's not a story. It's just facts. And we don't like it. Our human brain, the biggest part of our brain, the cerebral cortex, which almost no one knows what it does. So I'll tell you what it does. It memorizes patterns in your environment, inside your body and outside your body, that patterns from your eight senses that repeat. And if it finds a repeating pattern, it tries to predict what's going to happen next. If it's heard that or or seen or felt that pattern before, it will predict what's going to happen next. And your neocortex, Donnie, was just predicting the word next. It was predicting I was going to say next. <laughs> I see because what you did there. What our brains, yes. What our, brain, what our brains do all the time the biggest part of our brain, 75% of our brain, if you hold two fists together, that's the size of your brain. It's in two halves and it's all wrinkly like your two fists. Well, that wrinkly out a bit is a memory prediction organ. And it doesn't care what sense it's, it's processing, vision, internal gut feeling, hearing, touch, taste, any sense. It just treats them all the same. It said, I've, I've heard that pattern before. I think this is going to happen next. And so what it means is, your brain is trying to predict all the time what's going to happen next. And because we know that stories are inherently unpredictable, we go, Ooh, story starting. I better listen and pay attention. Now we'll only do that if we start the story the right way. So it's very important that you start your story correctly. If I say once upon a time, every child knows a fairy tale is starting. And that's the reason actually that fairy tales start with that phrase. But business stories, we give a time and place. It's important to give the time and place. Hmm. So in the year 2000, when I moved to Moscow, that's a signal to you that Mike is about to tell a true story. And if you start your stories that way, that you'll have much more success with them. So we've got three things so far. We've got a sequence of events. We've got unpredictability because that's what stories have to have or they're boring stories. And we've got a time and a place. And then we need a hero. We need... We need some person in the story that the listener can inhabit because that's what our predicting brain can do. Because what, what, what our brain has done is it, it's built this by, by looking at all the patterns that repeat, it's built a little model and the model is of ourselves in this world. And we're able to put other people into that model. We can mentally project another character into that model and imagine what it's like for them as we're listening to the story. So we have to have a character. And this, each of the seven stories has a different character. That's how you can remember and understand which story is which. And then it has to make a business point. That's the fifth thing. If it doesn't make a business point, then you, you're wasting people's time and you just tell your story at the pub um, or, the, or the barbecue. 
So, so that's like, what a story is. Where, where are most people messing this thing up? Because you've, you've given us some. They, they, mess, they, they mess them up. They mess them up in all five things. The all most five. common yeah. way to mess up. Yeah. The most common way is to not tell a story because it's not a sequence. You, you just start laying out some facts or opinions and then it just evolves into very un, uninteresting sales speak. If you don't start them correctly, people may not recognize you're telling a story. So they don't, they don't listen. They don't concentrate. So you, you miss them. Hmm. If you don't put a character into the story, particularly if you always make the character yourself, it becomes a bit tedious. And if you don't make a business point, then it really is time wasting. And some people tell lots of stories and people are irritated by it because they're not getting to a point. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, those are the ways. It, so we've got personal story. We've got company story. What, what yes, are the and then the third, the third connection story, I call it the key staff story. It's the story the salesperson tells about someone else in their organization that their future client needs to know and trust. It might be your CEO if it's a small company, or it might be your technical salesperson or your head of project delivery. But you can tell their story if you know it, and most people don't know their colleagues' stories, and they're amazed when they hear them. But when you know that person's story, you can tell it and you can certainly pump it up. You don't need to have the vulnerability in that story because it's someone else's story. If you're not bragging and that what that does is that primes your future customer to trust that person even before they meet them, but yeah. also to trust your organization because, and a lot of salespeople get stuck in delivery. They, they, they are the sort of the go-to person that the client trusts and they end up spending all their time in delivery instead of going and selling the next deal. And, and it's because they haven't primed, they haven't pumped up these other people in the organization to, is, to be able to hand over. This is huge. And, and, and this is like guys out there listening. This is where you probably are. You may be losing money because you've made yourself the be all end all. And Mike just gave you Correct. some really good stuff to basically say, Hey, Hey, I just want to let you know about the person that who's, who's going to yeah. be working with you a lot. They're awesome because as yeah. of A, B, and C, you're yeah, going to love exactly. them because of X, Y, and yeah. Z. And uh, well, yeah, well, so basically you tell them that, tell them the narrative. Yeah, they got into this business back 20 years ago when it was all starting and they did this amazing project and that. So you just put these little story right. narrative of the other person. So the good. clients like, they can't wait to meet them. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So those three stories together, those first three stories, I call the hook. I use a fishing analogy through the book and, and that's, that's the hook. And what you're trying to do in that sort of exchange of stories is get across that you're an authority, you know what you're talking about, you're likable and you can be trusted. And when you do that, when you do that properly, you move into the next phase, which I call the fight. Because uh, you've got the fish on the on the hook, but but it's a fight, right? They don't. Mm. Your client doesn't actually. The, your client doesn't actually want to change doing what they've already done. No one does, you know. And, and your client is pretty convinced they know what they're doing. So why should they change? Well, you're going to have to persuade them, right? And there are two stories that persuade them. They are insight stories and success stories. The insight story is the story that teaches your client how you got to know something about their business or their market that they don't appreciate, but they, they really should. Mm. And if you just tell them, I know, if you just tell them, I know this thing you should know, it's definitely going to come across as arrogant. You know, there's this concept of challenger, challenger sales and that, and people misunderstand that. They think that they think it means I should go and challenge my client. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. 26 year old sales guy. If you, if you're challenging the 50 year old 
seasoned exec in your client organization, it's not going to go well for you. Um, but if you <laughs> tell the story about how you discovered that thing, that 50 year old guy is going to stop and listen and, and he's going to appreciate it because you took his mind from where it was on a journey of how you discovered it. What were the false things that you tried? How did your research department learn that thing? What was the eureka moment? How did they persuade other clients? Mm. Okay, now I'm getting it right. And we got we to uh, do this in a way that doesn't make the client look foolish, right? Exactly. And the second story is the success story. So the hero of the research, of the uh, insight story, I call, I call it the researcher's story. It relates to selling anywhere. And uh, it relates actually to a client that I've been working with just this week. And um, so I wrote seven stories. And one of the things in the back of my mind was, I want to be able to run this business anywhere, my consulting business. So I put links in the book to my online training and I offer online training courses. And uh, I've been experimenting with how much personal input I put into those courses. Uh, and you never know, you never know how many you will sell, right? But mostly I've been using the online courses till now with my clients here in Australia. But anyway, I put the links in the book and I was connected via LinkedIn by a guy who runs a, a software business in Belgium. And this guy, you know, he didn't just read the book, he loved the book. And, uh, and he has about 70 staff. And one of his critical issues is internal communications and communicating the idea of their company. And I, I had sort of speculated, I've written a book, I've written an online training course and I had a, I'd written a, an online course for each of the seven stories. But I thought, well, what if someone wants more than that? I'll just put this one course, which is like, if you want three stories, it's this. And it was quite expensive and I didn't expect anyone to buy it. But he, he, he bought it. And so he said, so, and it comes with four video conferences. So four one-hour video conference sessions and some, we use instant messaging to practice the stories. And um, this guy is young. He's probably, I don't know, he's in his 30s and very ambitious and very smart. And um, he just picked it up like that. And we will have actually done, we finished last week, seven stories, hmm. including two of, his, two of his key staff stories. And, but he also came to me, he said, Mike, what about my technical guys? How can we convert my, my technology roadmap into eight stories, the eight technology development themes? I want to tell the story of the product. And, and he's actually developing product stories so that his technical people communicate in story instead of in very hard to understand long documents that, that no one that, that just confuse people. He said, you know, like that, the, the, the company is working at cross purposes if they don't understand the, these internal stories. And uh, he's just told me on this last message that he's in the process of doubling his company size. They're, they're merging. Wow. Have 140 staff. Very soon. Well, he, you, so he's a guy that got it army. full steam ahead. Yeah. Now I just told a success story and I want for your listeners to tell, to, to open up the parts of it, right? So that you notice that I started with him, this guy, his name's Thomas, actually. I didn't tell you his name, I probably should have, but Thomas in Belgium and his situation, he's got a software company and it's growing fast and he's a smart young guy. And then he read my book and he saw the online course and that's the plan, you're the guide. My, my role in the story is as guide for Thomas. And so he's taken my plan, which was the three-story online course and he's killed it, he's crushed it. <laughs> and he's developed over that period with me as his guide, these seven stories. 
but he's also avoiding failure in his organization by looking at how to use that technique to actually bring his technical organization along as well, not just his sales organization. And avoidance of failure is an important part of the success story. Mm. And then now the final part is the success. And I told you that he's, he's doing a merger and he's about to double the size of his company. So those are six parts. The six parts are your successful client in their natural setting. They have a problem. His problem actually was how to expand and in communicate internally rapidly enough. They meet a guide. That's you. That's your company. You give them a plan. How do they avoid failure? How do they achieve success? And, and if you tell it that way, and if you make your successful client the hero of that story, your future client, for them, it's like test driving your, your products and services. They actually, with that neocortex, with that predicting mind, they position themselves in the story as your successful client, and they live the journey with them, and they get it. I love and it. This is so much, so much more powerful than a case study. If you think about the three-part case study that marketing departments put on their website, it's awful. It says, here's our client in their shitty situation, right? So you already forgot to tell the part about what their business really is and what things were like before the problem. And then you go, here's what we did. So here's us riding in a, on a white horse as the hero. We're the hero. And now here's how wonderful things are. Mm. Aren't we wonderful? Aren't mm. we great? The subtext of those, you know, I'm talking millions of case studies now, Donnie. The subtext of, subtext of those case studies is we are brilliant. And the client, your future client, cannot see themselves in that, but they can see themselves in the success story if you tell it the right way with the right character. Does it make sense to you, Donnie? Mike, this is, this is, uh, this is good stuff. Here's, here's where like I've always believed and and always seen in in our world. I think that people are really, they're going to believe 25% of what you tell them. They'll believe 75% of what they tell themselves in, in what you're doing is really, you're kind of giving us the keys to kind of get in through the back door of their brain because we all love the story. And, um, we're, we're talking about believability and um this is this is good stuff my man well let's be clear you're telling a true story and the three-part case study was a true case study but the problem is in the three-part case study the client can't identify with it right but when they tell the story they live it they go into that character and they live that story which means they remember it and they believe it and they remember all the facts so when i say avoid failure and they feel it you too. can put in i'm hearing the there's, there's a it. yes Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, when I said that we're trying to predict, we're not just predicting what we would see and hear, but we were predicting what we would feel. And that's why stories work so, so brilliantly, you know, so they feel the situation. When you explain to them in that story, how they nearly failed, and maybe you put in some of the common objections, someone says, you know, but, but it's going to cost too much money. Well, you put into the story how they were worried about they were spending so much money and all that stuff. You've actually answered the objection in the story without them even having to, to think about it, right? So this is powerful stuff, you know. People who get this, you know, it really hums for them. So the final two stories, stories six and seven are about closing the deal. So you, you use insight stories and success stories to change their mind and change their course to differentiate, to win mindshare. But you use the value stories and the teaching story to get the deal closed. And here I'm thinking more specifically about bigger corporate deals because the deal is decided 
in a meeting that the salesperson is not present at. Hmm. Um, there is there is a stakeholder committee that makes this decision, and you, you're not there. And so, and and if it's a big deal, and I've worked on super big deals, more than hundred million dollar deals, and and if it's a big deal, it's a time-consuming, anxious political exercise that your client is going through. They're probably having several stakeholder meetings, and and in those meetings are only one or two people that really understand the solution that you've proposed and and know you as a company. So they essentially have to defend your company and your deal in those meetings and the other people are there and they're they're worried about you know risk is it going to work is it all going to fall over are we spending the money in the right place what about my department we should spend it on my department not your department so you get all these internal political fights going on and you can help your sponsor in those meetings with two two stories one is what i call a value story and the value story is the story that explains how your company will behave after they sign the deal. And I'll give you a quick example. When I worked for Siemens, I happened to be in our CEO's office when he took a phone call and he put the phone down. I could tell it was a serious call. And he said, you know, Mike, we're delivering the main components for the electricity cable that's going under the ocean from Australia to Tasmania, where I grew up, 400 kilometers under the ocean. It's called Basslink. Hmm. And um, the ship that was bringing the transformer, the inverter transformers from Germany to Australia, hit a storm in the Southern Ocean, broke its rudder, and all six transformers were smashed beyond repair. Wow. And I'm like, holy shit, you know? And he said, you know, Mike, um, the Siemens board, they had an emergency meeting and they didn't discuss who are we litigating and what's our contractual situation. They're discussing how do we make six transformers in record time? And they built them in uh, absolute record time in less than a third of the normal time. And, and the overall project hit its delivery schedule. And that's a value story, Donnie. That is a story that explains how your company behaves after you sign the deal. Now, put yourself in that stakeholder meeting where people are fighting and someone says, are those guys, yeah, all right, but I think we should, I'm not sure about Siemens, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that they'll deliver. And your sponsor has heard that story. He's like, you're kidding, right? I mean, his tone of voice is like, this guy's Siemens, you're joking, right? Of course they're going to deliver. And just tone of voice and confidence carries the day when they've heard that story. They start to know about your DNA when it comes to delivery. Now, for your company, it may not be delivery. It might be, say, you know, the hospitality industry. It might be ethical customer service. You know, the story of the lost wallet on the counter and the bellboy took it to the airport. Mm. You know, that's a story about your values, right? But these stories are very powerful. Not only to your future client, but they're very powerful for your own staff to know who we are and how we behave. And the last teach, the last story, the seventh story I call the sales manager story. So the character, the character in the previous one was, was the leader. Actually, it was the Siemens board. It was the, it was the leader of your company that displays your values. Seventh story is the story that you use to unblock from a technical point of view. So um, if you think about it, your client has probably never bought your, your product or your services before, but you've sold it lots of times. So you know what the typical things go wrong at the decision phase. So you can teach your sponsor, for example, how to get around a difficult person in, this, in the stakeholder committee or, or how to solve the problem where they don't understand cost of delay uh, or resource conflicts. So you can pull a story from that, that experience with another client and how you help that sponsor get around that problem 
just like you're their sales manager, you're, you're essentially treating your sponsor mm. like they're your, they're your salesperson and you're the sales manager. So you're just teaching them how to sell. In fact, there's a whole, there's an old saying, you know, you have to teach your client how to buy, which means you teach them what the right way to buy and you have to teach them how to sell. And this is the situation where you're teaching them how to sell. You're telling them a sales manager's story about another situation like theirs that they can tell to break the deadlock and get the deal closed. So those are the seven stories. So Love personal it. story, key staff story, company story that makes the connection, makes you trusted, insight story, success story that gets them to change direction, that gets them to understand they should move, they should change, and then value stories and teaching stories that gets the deal closed. This is powerful stuff, Mike. Thank you so much. You've distilled something uh, it sounds like it's taken you nine countries and lots of uh, companies and experience. Yeah, to get there. Listen, folks, I've done it the hard way. Don't do it the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, and this, the cool thing is, is Mike, we become, I, I feel like people of value and we can take something that's pretty complex and make it awesomely simple. And uh, it, it looks like you, you've done that here. This is, this is so much fun. I can't wait to dig into your stuff. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it off. I'm, I will have a, a, a link to your book in the show notes so the audience can, um, can of course, it's, a, it's available everywhere. The audio book's just about to come out and uh, you can get it from anywhere you can get a book. Just, awesome. just search for Seven Stories, Mike Adams. We'll, we'll have that. And then, but, but before I let you go, tell us about the work you're doing with Growth in Focus. Who, who are you yeah. looking for? Who do you help? And, and uh, what kind of people need to connect with you, man? Yeah, okay. A good description of what I've done in the last four years would be scratch around. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out, look, I'm in, a, I'm in a comfortable situation. Look, I made a lot of money in corporate sales, so I don't really have to work, but I like to work. And my wife's still working. She's, she's an academic in university, so I like to work. So what I've been trying to do is figure out how to make a storytelling business where I can really help sales teams. And I... I've been working all different ways to do that. I've been, I've been working with companies here locally where I'm kind of their sales manager, part-time, working on story development and helping them build a story library, helping them build a system of stories, if you like, right? Mm. And I think, I think that um, I, the way I see my business going, and I could change my mind at any time, Donnie, because I'm allowed to, do a little bit of work with big companies. You know, I like to work back with some of the companies I've worked with in the past, you know, and do the go out and run a workshop for a day wherever, you know, in North America, that's, that's fun. Do a little bit of that, but also continue to work the online part because ultimately I would like to be able to sell anywhere and I want to be able to sit on a beach and watch my bank balance go up and not down. And I think that online story development is the way to do that. So I want a bit of both. I like the excitement. I don't like to travel. I filled eight passports in my, corporate travel corporate selling career i don't want to be over traveling but my wife travels a bit i'd like to do a bit with her so a bit of traveling and start working on the online and and really help salespeople say the right thing by learning how to tell these stories love it well listen man in the process of that mike you are making the world a better place you are releasing superpowers right in in uh, people but guys listen you got to use your powers only for good that is our solemn oath here <laughs> as a part of the show that's, well that's that's look storytelling is a superpower absolutely storytelling is a superpower and like all tools it can be used for good or evil and i hope 
that some of the stories I've told in this hour give people pause to think about that, about how we, how we use our stories and how we do it to make the world a better place. Because the world, the world really needs people who want to make the world a better place right now, not just for themselves. Love it. Well, Mike, thank you, man, for sharing your story and uh, making us better at what we do. And uh, we will we'll have your, your information and all of that in the, uh, in the place. And um, you know, if there's any place you want people to specifically connect with you, um, I'll, I'll include that as well, whether email or any of that stuff. But thank you so much for raising the, uh, the boats in the water here, for being that high tide for us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was a joy. In fact, this is not my normal talk today. So it was really good to go and talk a bit about fear and politics and living in countries and culture and stuff. I've enjoyed it. That's just what we do. All the things you can't talk about at dinner, we do on sale anywhere. So (laughs) thanks a lot, Mike. We'll catch you on the flip side. Good on you. Thanks, Donnie. Hey, thanks for joining us. And before you hit that next button on that phone, I want you to continue with me for just a little bit longer because I've put something together, especially for you. I want you to go over to DonnieTuttle.com and you are going to find that I have put together a course on selling anywhere. I have literally taken all of the mistakes out of this thing that I've learned over the course of two and a half years and I provide a template of how you can go out there and sell anywhere. Everything from the traveling and the moving to the setup to the teardown to the mindset methods and motivation to different formats of being able to present to people in a way that is compelling I have done that for you, and I'm asking you to go to DonnieTuttle.com and download the first class session for free. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode.